Welcome to this successful farming podcast. I'm Jody Henke. This 2020 Farm Health and Wealth episode is sponsored by Ag Resource Management. In a time when there seems to be little good news in agriculture, hemp is offering hope for Lee and Shayna Berry. While the Minnesota couple's vision for raising hemp on their traditional corn and soybean operation began about three years ago, 2019 marked their first season growing this new, yet old, crop for CBD extraction. Although there's still a lot of uncertainty in the hemp industry, the strong market growth projections for hemp-derived products like CBD make betting on the crop's future stability an attractive option, and many growers are going all in. Yet the berries are taking a more cautious approach. Originally planning to plant 40 acres, they scaled that number back to 6 acres. With help from Kelsey Van Overbeck, an agronomist and hemp specialist with Farmers Union Oil of Southern Valley in Fairmont, North Dakota, year one was all about trial and error to better understand what it takes to successfully grow hemp. Successful Farming's executive editor, Lori Bedord, had the opportunity this past year to follow their entire journey of growing hemp. Tell us about your operation, Lee. How long have you guys been farming and what have you been traditionally growing? We've been conventionally farming about 2,000 acres for the last seven years. Corn, beans, alfalfa, a little barley mixed in. We run cow-calf pairs, and uh, that's kind of our daily grind. Conventional tillage, is that what you typically, is it no-till, strip-till? Strip-till and conventional. Where we can insert the strip-till, we do. So this past year, 2019, you started growing hemp. You guys have been thinking about it for a while, so... What made you guys decide, besides your wife telling you you had to? <laughs> it's, it's, we've had an interest in it, and, and it was just finally time to pull the trigger. And, and when the 2018 Farm Bill, we thought, well, it's no better time than the present. Get our feet wet, see what it's all about, and give it a whirl. You know, something challenging again. You were originally going to do 40 acres, and you really pared that back. So why go from 40 to 6 in 2019? We set out on our journey looking for seed for 40 acres. We could have got it certified organic. Um, we had irrigation. We were just exploring all the options of how we were going to approach this. And it really came down to when we were ordering equipment and uh, the lead times on equipment. Uh, we knew that we were going to miss the fall opportunity with mm-hmm. some of the equipment. So immediately we knew we didn't have enough hands to do it. So we downsized. So it really was a very labor-intense, hands-on deal this year, really. Very much so. We've got Kelsey Van Overbeek here with us, too. She has been an integral part of this whole process. You know, you guys have been working together for a number of years. How did you guys decide which way you were going to go as far as growing? Tell me about that. When we decided to dabble our feet into it, that one of the first calls we made was to Kelsey, and she had it in the back of her mind as well. Maybe you guys should try, you know, go for it, go for it. And it was kind of probably the push we needed to step into it and have her help with learning and, and what we needed to do. And we were fortunate to have somebody that was willing to dig in as deep as she did. You really dug in pretty deep, Kelsey. <laughs> you were researching and researching, so tell us about that. After Lee and Shanna called last January, shortly after we had discussed them taking on this venture, um, they called and said, I think we're going to do it. What do you think? And after the discussion, I said, well, what do you need from me? And they just said, well, we mainly need you to help how to grow it, figure out how to grow it. And so from 
only seeing it in tree lines growing wild in Richland County, North Dakota, to trying to figure out how to grow it was a steep learning curve. And so from that point on, for the next really five months, every spare minute I had was consumed trying to read, connect with people, network, and mainly just learn from reading and resourcing anything that I could about the grow because it was very hard trying to connect with people. You had to get through about 30 people to get to one right person that was willing to help you. Mm -hmm. And that was trustworthy. So it was definitely a steep learning curve, but I love a challenge and there's never not been a challenge on this farm. So it's just kind of fit right back in with everything else we do. Well, and I remember you telling me too, that there really wasn't a lot of current information, even though that's an, it's a new crop to farmers. Now it really is an old crop. I mean, they were growing it back during World War II and before that. And, you know, once it was banned, it disappeared for a bit. So, you know, the information that you were looking up was pretty dated. It was. A lot of the the valid information because of the grow style that we chose to go with was not your typical, whatever university data that was out there was not data that was driven towards the growing style that we chose to go for, which was more of a typical marijuana grow style. And so... A lot of the information that I had a source from was literally back to the 70s. So it was a challenge to try and find credible information that we could apply to date. And a lot of it just went back to basic agronomics and then trial and error throughout the season. Talk about the grow style and how you guys set up the individual fields. And if I remember right, you had four fields, five fields? I had five locations. Uh, one was just an R&D plot in our parking lot. But the rest of them were all into soil. We had a berm maker, uh, formed a berm and laid plastic and drip irrigation, and uh, mainly for you know weed control. And we needed a little extra heat that plastic will create for us up here. We did some direct seed on a, on one site, not real good results. So we picked a style and kind of ran with it. Was there one field that really stuck out for you guys and another? Because I know you said there was one field that didn't do so great and. Others really did well. What do you attribute that to? So we picked a couple of sites. This is back in in uh, January when we were launching this and figured out we didn't have the sites work. They were all idle ground sites. Didn't really think of the challenges with idle ground with sod bound and whatnot. So we had our work cut out first this spring, getting the tillage done and getting these sites prepped. One of the star sites that I thought would do extremely well was an old CRP, just coming out of CRP and in a nice little rich valley. Soil tested, everything come back, just wonderful, perfect spot to plant some hemp. And it was our worst site all year. Nutrient tie-up was a big, big deal. The plants just struggled, poured a lot of water to it, didn't seem to matter. Part of the field didn't have full irrigation on it, and those plants did just as well as the irrigation. So we did everything wrong on that site, pretty much. <laughs> so talk about the agronomic side of it and, you know, feeding those plants to help them grow. Because, Kelsey, you had told me that there are three important parts to this plant, water, sunlight, and nutrients. How did all of that impact how well these plants did? The site that Lee was talking about that we had, we thought was going to be the perfect site that ended up not so perfect. A lot had to do with it being CRP and we just broke it this spring. And so the organic matter tied up a lot of nitrogen. And being that we had teff grass as our cover crop, it was very visual that it was obviously showing deficiencies and the tissue test came back and proved it. In comparison to all of our other sites, we could tell the sites that 
really were excelling compared to the ones that were lagging, um, the tissue tests reflected almost perfectly. Even though we didn't have parameters from experts from industry to tell us where those levels should be, we could tell by our applications of feeding or just the sites in general by visually seeing the plants grow and how the tissue tests are responding. And then one of the best sites that we had was also broken this spring and was an old, um, possibly an old cattle yard years ago, but just had been sitting idle, but that broke up quite well. There was some tree branches and debris that was actually in the areas where the berms were built. It wasn't exactly perfect, but I think a lot of it contributed to the top three things that is important. And one of those is the heat or the sunlight and obviously the water and the nutrition. And I think it just had all three in like a little mini microclimate that helped the plants really excel and the poundage be on the high side. Next year, you're going to go to one field and you're going to keep it in that one field because it was so labor intense. We did a lot of bouncing around from site to site, and we didn't have any automation to our, our watering. That's a must this year. We're going to get some automation to that. Didn't know how well the cover crops were going to perform, and they did pretty well. You know, we just mowed our runways. That's how we could dealt with our weeds and did some hand pulling. Just to simplify it so that we can look at it big picture and have more time for nutrient delivery or, or whatever it may be. We did the sites because we had light soil. We had kind of a, a nice uh, loam soil, and then we did a heavy soil site. It really didn't seem to matter much, the, the soil type. They really performed good. They claim that it doesn't like wet feet. We did find that out firsthand, that uh, you don't want water to pool. If water pools, it will take the, those plants out immediately. So as long as you got the berm, it can shed the water. Our berms were a challenge last year because of breaking the ground just before planting. If we would have known that we had a little bit more of a planting window, we would have taken the time. But it rained, 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 rained every day. We were pushing it too hard. If we would have just known we had the time another week or so, we would have gotten it right and got the berms. They weren't pretty to start out with. So the seed bed prep for next year, is that really one of your main takeaways? Is that you really want to make sure that that seed bed is ready to go before you put a Absolutely. seed in the ground? And it'll be, we'll, we're light years ahead of where we were last year because we're not busting sod. So let's talk about the seed because you guys went with Trump 2 and Hempress 2. What made you decide to go with those seed varieties? When you're selecting your seed the biggest thing is networking with people and connecting with people that have had good experiences with seed companies and having a high percentage of feminized indoor seed. Last year, we had connections with people and so did I that had good experiences and that's how we selected the strains that we went with. And moving into 2020, we're more than likely going to go into trying a couple more strains that also have a good reputation and seeing what those can do in, in our climate. And you mixed it up too. I mean, you went with seed and plants. So talk about that and explain that to me a little bit more. Your seed, you you have to pre-approve with the state just to make sure that the COA is okay with them for you to grow. And after that is approved, then you can go ahead and you can either have someone else start your seed for you or you can do it yourself. And the first lot of seed that we had gotten was started by a greenhouse. And then the second a lot of seed, which was the hempress, we started ourselves. We had some challenges with the first lot that came in, and that's what pushed us to figure out the seed start part of it and perfect it because we didn't want to have to face those challenges again. 
and wanted it more under our hood and under our control of how those seedlings were getting started and acclimated. Well, and I've heard so many things out in the industry about, you know, with every new industry, it seems there's some bad actors or some bad players out there. And I've heard of farmers getting burnt with the seed. Did that help? You know, you talked about the network and really getting to know people and weeding through, no pun intended, the bad actors out there to make those good connections. I don't think we can stress that enough for this industry and, you know, just being careful and ensuring that you're connecting with the right people. Definitely. With some of the relationships that we had developed, you know, that trust factor that, hey, this these people are reputable and that's who we were doing business with. Turned out it was tremendous. The seed quality was great. We had three true males out of 6,000 plants. And we had a couple more herms in there, but uh, true males, that was really exceptional. And talk more about those feminized seeds and ensuring that they stay, and I don't know if the correct term is pure, but you know, making sure that you're out there and you're watching those fields so that those males don't come in because there still is a chance that they can come in. Is that correct? Yes, they can. Plants can hurt on you and do some damage as well. But for the most part, we were combing way, way too early, but just really wanted to see when that plant started to make that transition and catch it early so that we didn't have any pollination and it worked. We didn't have any, no seed production or anything in our fields. We were out probably about two to three weeks earlier than what we should have. But after the fact, figuring out, I had a prediction of, I believe it was August 12th or 15th, that we'd be roughly about 15 hours of sunlight. And it was almost to the day that the first true cola showed, but we weren't 100% sure that that was going to be accurate as far as when the males would start showing. So we were out there earlier because one of the biggest failures you hear is that people leave their sites for a week or two and come back and then they're all males or there's been a male that's opened up and there goes your your yield. So we were out there a couple of weeks earlier, but I think moving forward, we can be much more efficient with our time now knowing that we can predict with the sunlight, knowing when those colas are going to start showing and then as soon as that female resin is starting to be produced, that's what triggers the males. And we also know that about every 72 hours, you need to be combing through the sites because sites that we had been through and didn't see males showing themselves, we came back 72 hours later and there was a, a male that had already started showing itself. So you really need to be on it. Within that span of a couple of weeks after that first cola, you need to be out there every 72 hours. One male can ruin an entire site. They say, I think male pollen can go six miles, but they truly say one male can ruin a full solid acre. And once it pollinates a female, that is the highest CBD content that it will have. It's only downhill from there. And so it is very critical to be scouting at that point. I can't stress that enough. And even if you have indoor feminized seed, there is a small percentage that you can still have males. When we come back, the trio will talk about hemp seed prices, pests and diseases, harvesting, and why Lee decided to raise his crop for CBD oil. Stay tuned. More farmers are feeling a real credit crunch. Input consolidation, low commodity prices, and land ownership all come into play. But if you're feeling it, you know that. That's why technology-driven modern lenders like Ag Resource Management are becoming the future of operational cash flow. Meet the alternative lenders at armlend.com and get funded with crop-based loans and insurance that get you capital based on your ability to grow and nothing else. Visit armlend.com today because next season won't wait. 
Their attentive market leaders make lending decisions faster and get you capital quicker. Get funded today and seize next season at armland.com, the future of ag lending. That's A-R-M-L-E-N-D.com. Well, and as far as the seed prices, you know, explain to me what you guys paid for the seed and if you see that price going down next year. Have you looked into that yet? We're just starting to look at seed varieties for this year. So far, what I've seen is it's holding up pretty consistent where it was at last year, between that dollar and dollar and a half. And during the season, pests and diseases, you know, what were you watching for? What turned up? Mainly, it was a lot of the same insects that you deal with in a soybean crop. So when we were seeing, at least when I was seeing aphids in the soybeans or green clover worm or thistle caterpillar, a lot of that carried over into the hemp fields. And granted, we did have a soybean field that was in close proximity around a grove that we had this specific hemp field in that got probably the most pressure. And I think that had to do with the host crop that was nearby. But then we did see some budworm, very little in one site. And I believe there's also like ragweed and cockaburr can also be a host to that from what I've read. So there's just some of those things that we're, you know, just to be on watch for next year when those things start to come into the area. You just have to use an organic insecticide, just like a neem oil is all that we were using to try and control those insects and worked pretty well. So what were you feeding the plant during the season? A lot of fish and kelp applications throughout the season. And then there was another trial product that I was using that was organic based from an old colleague of mine that does hemp research. And then there was just, you know, some alfalfa meal. I think it was done on one of the sites, but mainly a lot of fish and kelp. So you're growing your product for CBD oil. That's the end goal here. Why choose that route versus other options? Uh, it's probably the most developed of the markets for the hemp. The other markets are just lagging a little bit behind with um, infrastructure and whatnot. So this is probably the low-hanging fruit at the moment. Very interested in getting into more aspects of it and more uses for the plant. But this was kind of the immediate need. She started harvest around September 19th, September 20th, wrapped up. October 19th, right before a snowstorm came in. How did the harvest process go? Help me understand what that was like. Slow and jerky to start out with until we got, you know, the right equipment in the right place, you know, kind of went after it like it was not a big, urgent harvest. We're just going to try to get through some of the processes and, and see if we could increase the flow of the operation. And within two days of getting into it, it was like, oh, no, we need to get after this we need to stay after this because the processing was with the equipment. We didn't have a lot of equipment, but it's very time consuming. We had a small crew. We were only doing a couple hundred plants a day. So once you got it processed, you actually processed some of it in the field and then you brought it back to the main farm. So tell me about that. And then let's talk about it. You know what you're doing as far as extracting. Yeah, we started doing it out in the field on the sites. That worked out really well. You didn't have to transport anything. It was the leaves and the stems and everything would stay there. We'd just bring the flower back and dry it. And that worked out really well until the weather put some pressure on us. And then we had to clear the fields because of the impending snowstorm. So we brought the last, I don't know how many, a couple thousand. About 2,000. And hung them. And 
didn't really want to do that because it was very labor intensive. But uh, hindsight, I would strongly suggest having space to do that with. It really relieved our harvest pressure. Just your crop is safe. And then you can do it on a more consistent time basis. You're losing light that time of the year. Weather was changing. It got wet. Now we could just continue to harvest without having to worry about the weather. And now you've put it through an extractor. Tell me why you decided to go that route. Well, that was a conversation we had soon after we decided to plant. We were wondering where and how we were going to get this product to market. So we started exploring that market, spent a month looking at different processes and procedures and decided that we needed to do something in order to convert our crop into a product that would be marketable rather than just selling the biomass. There was a need for it because there was quite a few people that were interested in growing in the area, but they all had the same question. So we decided to make the investment into an extractor. So we process the biomass into a crude form. Where will that go once it's it's in the crude form? Where will it go from there? Do you have a market for it? What's the next step? We're developing markets for it. It's been slow. The oil industry has kind of get a bottleneck. I don't know if there's oversupply of from last year's crop out there or um, if it's the harvest pressure. There's starting to be buyers showing up, knowing that we have product and having those conversations and then going through the numbers and seeing where the numbers come in at and whether it needs post-refinement or if they're taking it in the crude form. So those conversations are all being had. So you can't be alone in that. I mean, I'm sure there's other farmers that are trying to figure out where do I take this? Absolutely. So some of the growers are taking their product. They wanted to, they had the plan to go right to end product. So we're a stepping stone. We process their material, get it in the form that they need, and then they can take it into their products. We help market their oil through the buyers that are coming. So there's multi end users, I guess. A lot of the product, it'll probably go into a lot of the same products, but different brands. Do you get a sense that there's a lot of growers out there that are just kind of hanging on to their hemp for now to see where the market is going? There is some that are sitting in the bio, yes, in the raw form, in the flower form, and waiting for prices to improve. Some have decided to get it that converted into an oil form because the shelf life is longer. That's where most of them are heading right now because we're heading into another planting season mm-hmm. and they plan on growing and they need to get it stabilized so there's no deterioration on it. So if they hang on to that in a biomass form, how does that affect quality? Does it affect quality? It will affect quality, yes. The biggest thing we have is humidity. I mean, here we are at Minnesota, you know, we had an extremely humid winter. We know what the summers bring. So, yeah, there's some quality concerns there if you're going to hang on to it and try to store it. You're going to have to make sure that your space is conditioned. Talking about quality, how did your product fare as far as, you know, what the buyers are out there looking for as far as percentage? You know, what are they looking for and, you know, how did you measure up to that? From what our experience dealing with uh, different formulators and buyers across the state, the numbers have been coming in on the low side this year just because obviously weather had a big influence on it. So a lot of it needs to be have post-refinement on it to get those numbers to where they need to be. Mm-hmm. What were your numbers, and were they looking in the, the 60, I think is what you told yes, me? Yes, they're looking for something around the 60 on the cannabinoids, and a lot of it has come in in the low 50s to mid 50s. 
just slightly under where it needs to be for them to use it in their products. So then we do a, a post refinement on it and then get those numbers into that 65 to 70 mark. Okay, so you can really improve those numbers yes. by going through that post-refinement. Yes. THC levels, that's one thing we haven't really talked about. Obviously, everybody knows that magic number that you have to stay under. And I know you guys were monitoring it throughout the whole season. But when the state finally came in to test it, where did you guys fall? And were you comfortable with that number? Yeah, the numbers all came in very very low. I mean, our highest number was like 0.17, so like half of what the threshold is. But part of that was our growing season, and we did start on the early side of things because we were trying to get through the process. But that rang pretty true through all the growers in the area. Everybody was fairly low. And plants versus acres. I know this industry likes to talk about the number of plants versus the number of acres. So talk about that a little bit and what that means. Well, when you're doing everything by hand and you touch that plant how many times, it really boils down to the plant. Your grow style, your space that you have to grow, whether big or small, it's the best way to approach it because they know what they paid for a seed start. They know what they did for nutrition. They can spread their labor out over their plants. And it gives the truest picture versus just going by the acre because that plant population varies so greatly from one grower to the next. How many plants did you guys plant? We had 1,150 plants per acre. We spaced our rows out quite a bit from standard. I mean, a lot of guys are in 60-inch centers. We did 120-inch centers, 51 inches in between our plants. We did some plants with 33 inches between the plants. We just wanted to give ourselves room because we didn't know how much we were going to be getting through there with a ranger for feeding. That really helped tremendously to be able to not have to do everything on foot. We maintained our runways. You know, you could go through, drive through there and just look at the plants when you're sexing. It really eased everything up as far as not being so crowded. Will you keep that same spacing next year when you move to one field? Definitely. Okay, so you're happy with the 51-inch spacings between the plants? On the varieties that we raised, the 51-inch spacing worked really well. They were growing together by the end of the season. Some varieties that are a little bit shorter or, or wider or narrower, just depending on their structure, you could adjust that. And also the planting date, if we were going to plant later. Our later plantings were, we did some 33s, and they were fine if it was late enough. They didn't tend to bush into each other too bad. I would definitely do the 10-foot again just because of the ease of harvest and the ease of sexing and the ease of maintenance. Well, and I liked Kelsey's point the other day about the different shapes of all the ladies. Mm -hmm. Some were tall and thin and some were a little bit shorter and a more curvier stature. And what did you see throughout the whole growing season and how different the plants were? That was one of the lessons that I took away from the year working with conventional or traditional egg, however you want to call it. You have this tendency to look for consistency, perfection, replication, because we're working with mostly genetically modified crops. And I was constantly looking for that with this or trying to manipulate whatever I could to try and make it so that we had that consistency in each one of the plants. And it took the consultant that I've been working with on the West Coast to virtually just, she kind of giggled and said, Kels, 
you are a traditional farmer at heart. These are as raw and wild a plants and genetics as you're going to get. And you're going to have a short, curvy lady next to a tall, skinny lady. And we call them ladies because they're feminized seed. And so once I accepted that, I was not going to get that perfection of a look in a site and just accept the genetics for what they are. And you know, you see one plant that has a different color than the other or different curves than the other or more tops than the other. You just have to accept that that's the way that this plant is. It's really art by nature. What about what is going on as far as in the state? I know you had to apply through the state to be able to grow hemp. So explain to me what you guys had to do in order to be able to grow the plant and what you'll have to do next year. What are the requirements? Because I know it's a moving target right now, really. We just renewed our license here. So the first year to grow, you have to submit to a background check. That's the longest process. It's about 30 days, three weeks to get the background check done, and then about a week to get your license ready. It was not a big deal. So this year, we didn't have to go through the background check. We just had to do a renewal, which it all happened the same day. So it was a much easier process this year. Transporting, are you guys transporting your product? I know you've had some farmers come to you you know, where does that all stand in the state? Because I know there's been some issues with guys crossing state lines and getting arrested. And I'm sure you hear all the rumors out there. It's having a legal product from the start under the point three. It really hasn't been an issue with any of the growers because they're well within the limits and They've got their documentation. They got their documentation. They bring it in. We get their license number and they're fit for commerce and everything has been good. What lessons have they learned after one year of growing hemp? Lee and Kelsey give their advice and also why it's so important to start small rather than going all out gangbusters. Stay tuned. More farmers are feeling a real credit crunch. Input consolidation, low commodity prices, and land ownership all come into play. But if you're feeling it, you know that. That's why technology-driven modern lenders like Ag Resource Management are becoming the future of operational cash flow. Meet the alternative lenders at armlend.com and get funded with crop-based loans and insurance that get you capital based on your ability to grow and nothing else. Visit armlend.com today because next season won't wait. Their attentive market leaders make lending decisions faster and get you capital quicker. Get funded today and seize next season at armlend.com, the future of ag lending. That's A-R-M-L-E-N-D.com. Both of you really have been talking to a number of farmers who are either interested or have grown hemp this past year. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned out there. There's some guys that have really jumped in with both feet and are betting the farm on this being a savior. You know, we've had four or five years of horrible corn and soybean prices. It's not been easy in farm country. You know, there's a lot of hope being put on hemp. But you also have to be very cautious and there's so much to learn. You know, you could have gone with 40 acres, but you decided, you know, let's just start small. So talk about the starting small and why guys really need to take it slow and learn as you go. Hit the nail on the head, just being cautious, just wade into it. We deal with a lot of growers that did it on a couple thousand plants basis to start out with. And, you know, there's a lot of adjusting going on in the market with oil prices being a lot lower this year than they were a year ago or two years ago. And you can't really predict what that's going to do. So you do what you can afford to do and don't get in over your head. 
learn it, learn the plant, learn your growth, uh, learn what you have to do. You can always trim some costs out. Those growers, the conversations we're having now, they're excited about growing again next year. They were able to cover their costs, make a little bit of money, and then they scale up. But don't start out too big until you kind of understand the whole process. The harvest part of it, we thought it was pretty labor intensive throughout the season. When it got to harvest, we were kind of surprised. We had a certain uh, batch of equipment to work with and, and figured out our efficiencies and how to do it faster. And then we went and got bigger, some other equipment to test out. And it really wasn't gentle enough on the plant when we were processing it. So we lost a lot of yield processing it in a harsher way. So we went back to the slower process. And that's on the flower part, right? The yes. flower is very sensitive. The flower is very sensitive. And in doing it wet, we had really good luck doing it wet because it's firm and, and sticks together well. The bud comes off really nice. We had some issues when the plant started to dry down after it being hung for a while. We had to change our style of how we approached it because it was being a little bit too aggressive on that flower. And you would lose some product through the process. And that was just unacceptable to us. Well, in this past year, you grew organic. In the process of being certified organic, tell me why you went or are going that route versus a conventional grow program. The industry is just kind of pulling everybody that way at the moment. They're demanding we do, you know, we do all the pesticide. We send out onto a third-party lab for all the pesticide, mycotoxins, heavy metals. We get the whole profile done. Make sure that this product is clean, obviously, for the consumer at the end. And how difficult will that be for you on your end? Your ground was organic, even though it wasn't certified. So it doesn't sound like it'll be a tough transition for you going forward? No, it won't be a tough transition. It's just getting the documentation and whatnot. And we were using all organic products. And so nothing will really change. It's just getting everything certified and getting the paperwork and getting that whole structure in place. Let's look back on year one. What are some of the lessons you've both learned as far as growing the plant? I know, Kelsey, you've talked about a couple of things. You know, obviously these plants need some sunlight. We didn't have the growing degree days that we probably should have for the plant. It loves water, but it doesn't like wet feet. Nutrients also play a big part in it, and you've experimented with a few things. You know, what are some of the takeaways that you've seen from year one? Well, I think on the grow side of it, with that pull towards more of the organic end of it, the farm overall, whether it's hemp or any of the other crops that we grow, the goal is to be efficient, sustainable, and profitable. And that goes with the hemp also. It might not seem like a big deal, but just honing in on our runways become our rows the next year. It's kind of a rotation within a site. And so trying to get the sites more self-sustainable, that the feedings will become less that what you're growing in that runway is going to feed your crop for the next year. So more nitrogen fixation cover crops along with the purpose of it being your weed control for that year. You know, just little things like that with the grow end of it. I think the biggest thing like Lee had mentioned was it came to the harvest end of it. And all throughout the year, we went through the process and kind of tweaked it along the way and figured out what was probably the most efficient. And that was the hardest thing I think with this crop is that it is so labor intensive and we're naturally driven to mechanicalize everything. And the more you mechanicalize it, there is a breaking point at which, like Lee said, that you lose quality. 
And that was probably one of the most frustrating parts was that you can only mechanicalize it to a point at this point with the technology that's out there and the equipment that's out there because the yield is oil and anything that touches it, anything is going to take that oil off of that plant and remove it. And that is your yield. That's your profit. And so there is a breaking point. And that was one of the biggest things I think with harvest was if there's a point to give to guys is be prepared to harvest, be prepared with your people. And um, like harvest for us, I think for this next year, I think we've agreed that going into the sites and wet bucking, you know, hand bucking wet, we call it the gravy tops, your A tops, and taking those back, drying them, and then removing the rest of the plant, which I call the cash crop, and hanging those to dry and then dry bucking the rest of the plant, I think is probably the most efficient way that we found to do it with the research that we've done with the hand buck versus mechanical and the results that we got through the extractor. I don't think that there's many people that have those type of results and answers out there for people. So I think those are two takeaways of the grow part of it is trying to be more sustainable and the harvest efficiency part of it is that process for harvest. So if I'm hearing you right, you can't just take a combine and just zip through that field and harvest those hemp plants, which I think I've heard at least one or two guys have tried to do that. Yeah, there's some modifications that are out there to a combine and and there's been some really mixed results coming out the back end. But this was a great year for just trying all those different methods and finding out what does work and does work. We didn't know last spring. We didn't know what we needed. And we started picking through a couple of things like how we're going to approach it. But we knew that going into it, that that might not be the end result. We might need to go a different direction. You have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C, but once we found one that was working and then proved it up with the, on the extraction side that this was the most productive, we were losing the least amount, that's kind of where we've started to trend and to make that process much more efficient. As we talked about earlier, some guys have just gone all in. You know, what, What's your cautionary tale, I guess, going forward for a lot of these growers? When growers ask me, I tell them you never test the depth of a river with both feet. And with this, like Leah said before, you shouldn't risk more than what you're willing to lose. It's a high risk, high reward, very volatile grow, but at the same time, it can be extremely rewarding. And if you enter it with caution and you connect with the right people and local people that you can access very easily, I think those few key measures, I think, could help you be very successful in the grow. And Lee, we had talked about some of the rules and regulations that were going to change, specifically in Minnesota. You get 30 days from the time the state comes in and checks that THC level to harvest, and they're thinking about shortening that window. So I think it's important to talk about that, too, because you've done this for a season. You know what you need to get that crop in and out of the field, especially if you've got a snowstorm coming. Right. So the feds are looking at charting the harvest interval to 14 days, and uh, we had 30 to work with last year. It took us all of our 30 days to do our six acres. Keeping that in the back of your mind as far as if it stays at 15 days, you need to be able to get this crop removed. We do have a harvester that will assist with taking down the plant and putting it on a trailer for next year. So that will be able to happen much faster than 
by hand. Hopefully it comes in by harvest. Hopefully it comes in by harvest. <laughs> so that is a real concern because when you're scaling up, you have to get that plant removed. We have weather. It's October, remember? You're challenged with other harvests with your beans and your wheat and you're maybe getting into some corn. So you have to balance that out and either have hanging space for that crop or being able to attack it with your equipment and getting that removed. That's going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. So what other concerns do you have? Is that the main one? I mean, what other things are you hearing out there that are really concerning to you as a grower and as on the agronomic end of it too, Kelsey? I think, uh, you know, a lot of the growers this year were just trying to figure out, okay, yes, we got to get it off the field. Yes, we got to get it processed. Drying is a key component to that. I mean, we don't take our corn in, you know, at 30% moisture. So you have to have some sort of method of, of drying this stuff. We did uh, dehumidification. We have a dehumidification room. We put our product in and take the moisture down slower without heat and preserve the product for extraction. That was one of the main things is people weren't quite prepared for that piece of it. And just to add to Lee's point with that, just preparing, I think there's I fear that there's a simplicity implication that growers have to this whole grow that, you know, they see the dollars that they could possibly be capturing and they're not really thinking about what it all takes to get to that point. And it doesn't mean that you need to grow a quarter worth. It definitely does not mean that. The smaller scale is more realistic and can be very, very profitable. Between that seed to that harvest point, there's a lot of things that you can do. It doesn't take six months to build an indoor or outdoor protocol without that. And temperatures for drying and quality and where you can keep that quality of your flower. There's so many different intricate details that go into this grow that I think maybe often get overlooked or just people don't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. And with that six months that I told you that it took to just dive into an indoor outdoor protocol, to build, there is a lot of finer details that contribute to that profitability at the end of the year. And, you know, I hope that growers don't think that this is going to solve the farm's bottom line deal. And I think that maybe that implication is out there. And I hope that this maybe clears that up to growers. But it, if you can be successful at it, it can definitely add some decent cushion for a grower and some diversity to the farm. From the very beginning, you've developed a binder and your own protocol. So you've been documenting everything along the way just to ensure that you can go back and you can share with Lee, you know what, we did this and it didn't work. So we tried this mm-hmm. and this worked. Right. So, you know, talk about that documentation, how important that is. I think just record keeping in general, just so that you can go back. When you're growing and you're living it daily, you would know, obviously feel so fresh, like you're never going to forget it. But when you look back and you're trying to remember that fine detail, those dates all kind of go together. The time spans go together, the rates, the times you applied, the rates that you applied them at. So record keeping, how we did it was the protocol book that I had made was virtually from everything that I read, sourced, networked with people, and then just rewrote an indoor and outdoor protocol for a grow setting and all the way through harvest and up to the extraction part of it. And then with our shared file, obviously we're all on you know, iPhones, so we had shared files of photos and I bet there's over tens of thousands of pictures of documentation and then notes with those pictures. And then obviously screenshots of different things we're researching that we would network and send back and forth to each other between Lee and Shanna and I. 
And then the notes in our phone that was shared between all of us was the constant record keeping of applications, things that we saw in the fields, what to take note of for next year, things we did right or wrong. And those things we can always go back to and source to. So I think at the end of the year, if you have that to resource to of what you learned, I think not only did it benefit us, but I think right now it's benefiting a lot of other people. Yeah. And I was just going to make that point, you know, you guys have learned so much and you are sharing that knowledge with others. I mean, you had said it earlier, it's been tough to find people that are willing to share information because it just seems like it's a very closed and, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to let our secret out, but you guys are willing to share information and what you've learned to date. Well, a lot of the people that do know how to grow it very well are probably growing on a very small scale and maybe not exactly legally. And so they're more than likely not willing to share their knowledge of what they're doing. And so when you're trying to legally grow it and scale it to the level as a crop, it's a whole different ball game. And so very few people to access for that information. Oh, we're all better together than we are apart. The conversations that I'm having with growers is very, very interesting because we're going back to how many plants they had in different styles and cannabinoid numbers and oil numbers. And one instance I had, it was about a three-week conversation dealing with two growers that grew across the fence line from each other. Same variety, same ground, same style. Everything was identical but they had a couple points of oil difference between the one girl and the other. And we were trying to pinpoint, did you feed something different than your neighbor? And they went back and forth and no, everything kept coming back exactly the same. Got down to one event where they got a titch dry and one was running more water all season, just trying to maintain the soil profile. And one was just responding to the weather. And that was the only difference between the two was water. The one ended up with two points more oil content and considerably more poundage than the other. And it was an identical grows. That's the stuff that is really intriguing that isn't necessary to put down drip line. Well, this year in Minnesota, probably not. We got rain, rain, rain. But at the end of the day, even in a wet year, that made a difference. Just as an important cautionary tale of all this is the connections that you're making in the industry and ensuring that whoever you connect with, you vet that person very, Mm -hmm. very carefully. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. When you are growing a crop that you know very little about, as you said, it's just like having a newborn baby. You've got to nurture that baby and learn about that baby every single day. And I'm not saying you need to be out there every single day, but you can't leave a crop for a whole season and expect it to come back and be phenomenal Mm -hmm. when you know little about that crop. Well, and associating with yourself, the growers that are going to also take that care and are ethical, you know, to be able to undertake this hemp venture that usually does have a stigma to it. And you have many people involved that are very ethical and have good reputations to be able to take this on and show people that this can be taken on by by people like us, like farmers like us, like consultants like us, and run with that. But you still have to be mindful of who you're associating yourself with and making sure that just like with the group of growers that we've been working with is that everybody's kind of on that open two-way street of communication that everybody's trying to help each other succeed at the end of the day. There's a lot still yet to learn about this plant because there are so many unknowns so on your end, Lee, you're getting calls fairly frequently about you know what you guys are doing here and 
what are you hearing from guys out there? You know, are they running into some bad actors out there? Or are they just looking for somebody to help them with the process? Both are, you know, some have experienced bad seed or got misinformation or whatever. But just the, the openness and sharing the information that we have. Most of the growers that grew last year are planning on growing again next year and tweaking it. Yes, absolutely. Maybe sourcing their seed somewhere else or trying just switching it up a little bit. So there's a lot of adjustments going on through the industry and we want to help them put those numbers together because we do see the information on the backside that it's a team effort to explain, hey, if you know if you could increase your yield by if we would have gotten decent weather and you would have been another half a pound of production per plant, that's a game changer. You know, is there something that you could do in your program besides Mother Nature that would have gotten us there? Is there somewhere we can trim some costs out? Those conversations are really effective and everybody's on the same playing field. And I think the misinformation is the toughest part. I mean, this is such a new industry. And what do you mean hemp? And it's often confused with marijuana. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's much good information that we can get out there to combat that bad information or the misinformation is definitely going to help in the long run. And how can we continue that effort? Is it through podcasts like this? Is it through Mm -hmm. articles, through Successful Farming Magazine? I mean, what can we do on our end? I mean, I know you guys are trying to connect with farmers and growers and help them understand what else can we do out Mm -hmm. there? Last winter, I spent three months picking up everything that I could read about hemp. We had so many things on our plate that we had to figure out and reaching out to grab all this information. And some of the information was very outdated. Some of it was maybe not 100% accurate. But this is Minnesota. I mean, we were reading stuff that was happening in Colorado or, or Oregon or Washington. And it's, it's a different environment. And the plants react differently. And so now we're getting some real solid data. So hopefully, you know, for the next grower, they can pick up your magazine or listen to the podcast and have current, up-to-date information to kind of help make those decisions. So do you ever think you'll have a field day here at some point and invite growers in? We had a few field days this last year. We brought in growers. We brought in different banking systems, senior management. We're going to have a land managers group come this summer. We've entertained, I think, anyone that is asking for, we feel, a proper reason. And it's obviously time consuming along with everything else we're trying to do. But part of the reason why at least I'm doing this is because of exactly what you had said is that I think education is what we need to have out there for people to understand. I mean, just even the basic terminology of the differences of the types of grows and the end products and the reasons or uses are of what we're doing. I mean, I've heard industrial hemp. I've heard hemp. Yes. They're the same. No, they're not the same. It's it's so confusing. Right. It took weeks to almost a month to get to the point of just understanding all of the terminology Mm -hmm. that's being used in this industry and to try and weed through all that information. But to break it down, like Lee said, and take the information that we've found And we do have very detailed information to show growers and say, if you're trying to figure out where your break-even can be, this is what we found. This Mm -hmm. is your low. This is the high. This is an average of what we found here in a Minnesota grow setting on the type of grow style that we're doing. When we got into this, we really had no idea where that break-even should be or could be because you had no idea what 
even a general yield would be. Well, now we can give that scenario to a grower that with the product that's come through the extraction with growers in our area on a Minnesota grow, this is the minimum that we've seen. This is the maximum, you know, pound wise. This is the gram per plant minimum, maximum. So you take the average of each one of those. And especially when you're talking with growers that really need to have that information, whether it's for their bank or crop insurance or any of those types of entities that are asking for, well, what are you expecting? I mean, who's going to tell you that? Where Where is the information that you're going to get that is valid to this region? Mm-hmm. And I think with the amount of product that's come through Lee and Shanna's facility is that we can give a fairly good idea to a grower of where they're going to be on roughly a yield or where they can figure their break even no different than they do on their corn. Mm-hmm. And it's just a scenario that when we tell growers, you know, grams per plant, they kind of just look at you like, what does that mean? And you just relate it back to, well, you know, that's kind of like your bushels per acre. 150 is probably not the greatest crop. 200 is pretty nice average. 250 is amazing. So that's where you kind of categorize it for a grower on the hemp end of it so that they can kind of put in perspective of what to expect or not to expect or where their loss and their gain could be. So the grams, I mean, how do you break that down for them? Is there a magic number there that you like to compare it to? How do you break that down for them as far as hemp or or can you at this point? Once we go through the extraction process, we have growers that are getting 60 grams per pound. So 50 to 60, that's like the 250 bushel corn in this year's environment. So a lot of them are falling, you know, where our average has been holding out at 42, 43 grams. We've had some that were 30 grams. So I think in relationship, the 30 grams would be like your 150 bushel corn, you know, depending on your input costs, you may or may not be able to make money at 30 grams. But if you hit 42, are you now you've made a little bit more depending on your input costs. But when you're hitting consistently over 50 grams, now you're you're not, doing okay. You're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the one point that you just brought up is the financial backing banking part mm-hmm. of it, because bankers are hesitant already to loan farmers money for their operating loans because the margins have become so tight. Corn and soybean prices are not great, you know. And then you turn around and you want to grow hemp. What are you seeing in that area? Lee, you had talked about that a little bit yesterday and, you know, some of the questions that you're actually getting from bankers. Yeah, just kind of the risk. And there's been several bankers that have been through here and want to know, learn the process and learn some numbers so that they know what questions to ask of a grower when they're proposing how big or how small or what do you have for equipment and what are you going to do for drying? So they got those kind of questions in their arsenal to make sure that the grower is, you know, prepared for what they're undertaking. When it all comes down to it, it will all settle down. It will. Like everything Mm -hmm. else has done. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's an interesting to kind of crystal ball it and say, where do you see this industry in five or 10 years? Well, the the challenge that we talked about with the mechanicalization is its biggest limitation, I feel. I've heard the comments from growers saying, well, you know, this is just going to be a flooded market and everybody's going to jump in and then it'll just be like a commodity like corn and beans are, you know, and then we'll be in the same situation in how many years? Maybe so, but from what I've seen on this type of grow style with the end use product that we're after, there's a breaking point at which you can mechanicalize it. And I think that is going to be a huge deterrent 
And if they don't have the labor or mainly the, the hanging capability to hang and dry their plants to dry buck them after their other harvest, mm-hmm. um, that's the ideal setting right now. And if they don't have that, it's probably not a realistic option. And so I think in the future, if that's still the only way and the best way to do things, it's going to stay a niche market. And maybe that's okay. Thanks to Lori Bedord, Lee Berry, and Kelsey Van Overbeck for their thoughts and experiences growing hemp. And thank you for listening. This 2020 Farm Health and Wealth episode was brought to you by Ag Resource Management. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody Henke.